morning. Morning. Great to uh, be together. As Dan said, if you, um, if you don't know me, my name's Richard. I'm one of the leaders here. It's a pleasure to welcome you and to be together this morning. And as Dan said, we are continuing our preaching series, looking through just the first few chapters of the book of Acts. I'm sure many of you will know the book of Acts is also called the Acts of the Apostles, because it tells the story of the first apostles, the first disciples, and the beginnings of the church. And we're going to look at one of those stories today. But first, when I was uh, 10 years old, I woke up one morning and decided that uh, instead of going to school that day, I was going to manufacture a reason to stay home, and uh, I was going to build a big shipping in my living room out of cardboard boxes and get dressed up and play pirates. We've all done it, I'm sure. So I got out of bed, I found my mum, and uh, I pretended to cough and splutter all over her, and I convinced her that I was too ill to go to school. But my mum wasn't the most sympathetic person, uh, and she just wasn't buying it. So she basically said to me, get back in your room, get dressed for school, you're going to school. Um, Now, I grew up in Johannesburg, and the way the bus system works there, I knew that if I delayed her long enough, she would miss the only bus to work, and she'd just have to leave without me. So that's promptly what I did. I just delayed the whole situation and dragged my feet, and uh, she had no choice, ultimately, but just to leave me and go to work for the day. So victory was mine. I was uh, off school, mum was out of the house for eight hours, time to get dressed up as a pirate. (laughs) Subsequently did, and continued to reenact the pirates of Penzance in my living room. The problem was my mum was actually quite cunning herself. So what she did when she got to work is she phoned my headmaster and said Richard had refused to leave the house this morning. So if you just picture the scene for a moment, I'm jumping from chair to chair dressed like Jack Sparrow, uh, when suddenly the doorbell rings and I see the terrifying silhouette of my headmaster. His name was Mr. Nell. Mr. Nell was also an international rugby referee, so he was very used to dealing with much bigger and more complicated jokers than me. So you can imagine how I felt when I opened the door and he went, in the car, you're coming to school. Now, what made matters even worse was that as part of my dress-up, I'd taken a permanent black marker and drawn a moustache on myself. And uh, when I said to him, Mr. Nell, have I got time to wash this off? He went, no, get in the car. So I arrived at school, much to the amusement of my friends, and sat through the entire day looking like a 10-year-old version of Tom Selleck from Magnum P.I. It was ridiculous. Now, why did I tell you this story? It's all very funny, a little white lie, some funny consequences, and it was a very big life lesson for me, but is that it? So in all seriousness... Lying, deceit, and hypocrisy, these are not things that are far from any of us. We're only ever one sentence away from saying something untrue. A little white lie here, an omission on a tax form there, they go unnoticed and unremembered, much like mine would have if my mother hadn't called Mr. Nell. It would have all just gone away largely unnoticed. But not to God. And today's passage involves the story of a couple who tell a little white lie in the church with devastating consequences. Today we're looking at Acts 4, verse 32 to 5.11. It's on page 1096 in the uh, Bibles in the pouch in front of you. Um, And it'll also come up on the screen behind me. But I've asked a couple of people to read this for us because it's actually a story of contrast. And I want you to feel the contrast. So Vicky and Nathaniel, if you guys could come and join me for a second. Vicky's going to read us out the uh, end of Acts uh, 4. It's... The ideal church. That's what Vicky's going to read. And then Nathaniel, if you can come in and stand on this side of me, please, so we can see the full contrast. Nathaniel's going to read Acts 5 to 11, which is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Good luck with that. Okay. 
Okay. The believers share their possessions. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone in who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostle called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Great, thank you. Nathaniel, take us to, through the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Now, a man <laughs> named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you've received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just lied to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. A great fear seized all who had heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are also at the door. They will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Brilliant. Thank you. I think that deserves a round of applause. Nathaniel sounded so menacing. That was really helpful. Thank you. Uh, when we were uh, parceling out this preaching series amongst the preaching team, I was really excited because the book of Acts is, is great, isn't it? Jesus ascends to heaven, the Holy Spirit comes, Pentecost, the church is born, 3,000 added to the church in one day, the apostles go to the nations, the gospel is spread, miracles happen, the church grows, it's all good news. Just don't give me the story of Ananias and Sapphira, or let's just leave that one out. Uh, the story of Ananias and Sapphira is one that I've always really wished wasn't there, if I'm honest. What does it teach us about God? What possible good news is there to be found in this story of a man and his wife who tell a lie and fall down dead in a Sunday church service much like this? But as I've studied this passage, I actually think it's a vital passage for us to grasp. And although on the surface it's actually quite disturbing, the principles within it are jam-packed with hope and challenge for the Christian and the not-yet-Christian alike. Because this is a story about God's holiness and about our purity. And there's a deliberate contrast in the way it's told between the, um, the generosity of Joseph, Barnabas, and the deceit of Ananias and Sapphira, and how God moves in very different ways as a result. But I can't deny it, it does raise a number of theological problems for us. What did Ananias and Sapphira do that was so wrong? Why did they have to die? And crucially, how do we apply these teachings to our life? 
In the, uh, in the end of Acts 4, the passage that Vicky read, we hear about this community, this small, fragile, fledgling church that were of one heart and mind. They shared everything they had. The apostles preached the gospel, and as a result, God's grace was powerfully at work amongst them. It says that there was no need amongst them. Imagine a church like that. Imagine Gateway being like that. No need, no loneliness, nobody carries any debt, nobody runs out of food, nobody has a leak in their roof they can't afford to fix. And in this day and age, imagine being of completely one heart and mind as well. Land was important to these people. Land has always been important in Israel. And so to sell the land and to squander it on the poor, that would have been massively radical in that culture. And it would have signified to the watching culture that something radical had happened to these people. Maybe a Messiah had come. And then we get to Ananias and Sapphira. Now, it's difficult to fully understand what was going on in their hearts because Scripture doesn't say, and it would be wrong for us to speculate. But we can take some idea of this from the contrast of the story with Barnabas and what was actually happening in the church at that time. Barnabas is celebrated in Scripture as a hero. He, he had land, he sold land, he gave it to the needy. He would have been cheered on and mightily respected for that. He would have received honor from the community. Now, it's possible that this was what was in Ananias and Sapphira's heart when they sold their land and gave the proceeds to the church. But the difference here is the deceit that accompanied their gift. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, they were in it together, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself and brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money yours? In other words, there was no, there was no compulsion for you to sell it and no, no compulsion for you to give us the proceeds even when you did. That's not the point. And that wasn't even the expectation. What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to humans, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Ananias and Sapphira didn't have to sell the land. They didn't have to give the money. There was no compulsion to do either of those things. That wasn't the point. The point was their hypocrisy. And it's reasonable to assume that they were seeking the same sort of acclaim from their sale as Barnabas had received. And hypocrisy is another way of saying deceit, and deceit is lie. And lies are told to alter people's perception of you, to hide what you've done or to appear greater than you are. That's what, that's what Satan did right at the start. He's the father of lies. And the father of lies cannot compare with the holiness of God. And that's the nub of what's going on here. God is holy, and he calls us to be holy it says right in the heart of the instructions to the Israelites when they come out of Egypt in the Old Testament, Leviticus 11.44, be holy because I am holy. Let's look at some things that relate to that concept that we can learn from. Number one, holiness is a joyful matter, but it's not a laughing matter. Holiness is variously used in Scripture to, to describe God. It's not only used to describe God throughout Scripture, but on two occasions, we get a, a report of the angels that surround God's throne, and they're crying out, Holy, holy, holy. Isaiah saw God and heard this cry of, Holy, holy, holy. And his immediate response was of despair. He said, Woe is me, I'm a sinful man. Surely my life must be taken from me in, this, in the presence of God. 
Even the angels who cry holy have to cover their face and their feet before God. It's as if the angels conceal themselves as much as possible in recognition of their unworthiness in the presence of God. And there's a clue here as to what's going on with Ananias and Sapphira, because if even the angels show such reverence in the presence of God, then we should be careful not to rush thoughtlessly or irreverently into his presence without an understanding of his awesome holiness. See, God's holiness is what separates him from all other beings, what makes him distinct and separate. God's holiness is more than just his perfection and his sinless beauty. It's the very essence of his otherness, his transcendence from humanity and any other type of God. God's holiness is what embodies the fact that he alone is perfect. That's what holy means. And the desire of the Father is that we too should live holy lives. His desire is always that we should be set apart from the sinful behaviors that come so naturally to the human heart. This is one of the ways we can make sense of some of the more obscure laws in the Old Testament. He said to the Israelites, only wear clothes of one weave. Don't cut the hair on the sides of your head or your beard. And crucially, don't eat badgers. All of these laws were put in place not to satisfy a pedantic taskmaster in the sky, but so that the Israelites, the people of God, would act and look differently to the surrounding nations, the idol worshippers, the blood drinkers, the child sacrificers. Those were their contemporaries in the ancient Near East. God's people were meant to represent God, and that meant ensuring that none of their practices led them looking or becoming like these surrounding peoples. It's the same now. We're meant to be in the world and befriending the world and sharing the life of Jesus with the world, but we must not become tainted by the sin of the world or the attitudes of the world or the ambivalence of the world that we see nowadays. We must maintain our distinctiveness for the sake of the gospel so that the world will see that we live differently. We love each other. We love the poor. We love justice and peace and righteousness because we love God. And God is all of those things. That's how we live holy as God is holy. And God will not allow anything less. And there's hope there. That's why he pursues you. That's why he convicts the world of sin. That's why he descends from heaven. He gets nailed to a cross. And he strips away our sinful stain. So that when he looks at us now, he sees only cleanness. He sees people with potential to stand out against the surrounding culture. And loudly declare in word and deed that Jesus is good news. Because he makes us right with God. And that's important because every human being was designed with one purpose in mind, to be in relationship with God. And it will never be right with us until we are. In the case of Ananias and Sapphira, it wasn't about the money. It wasn't even about the desire for honor. We're all, we're all guilty of that. Everyone wants to be loved and respected. It was about the lie. And it was about what the lie would bring into the church and how that lie would do what Eve's lie in the Garden of Eden would do. It would fester and bring disunity and upset the balance in the community and how a people called to be set apart for God to a watching world would appear as nothing more than hypocrites and liars. And that just would not represent a holy God to a watching world. The big question, of course, is what actually happened to Ananias and Sapphira? God killed them. Peter cursed them to death. They just die of shock or a broken heart. No one really knows. It doesn't say in Scripture. But I do know that in this fragile, fledgling church, if it was going to reach the world in the way that it did, then they had to be of one heart and mind. And it was vital that they were holy as God is holy. 
Deceit is an affront to holiness. Tolerance of wrongdoing in the church always puts us on a slippery slope to becoming wrongdoers ourselves. Tolerance of sin in our lives in the church does not represent God. It makes us no different to anyone else, and it dilutes this very important message. Mankind is in serious trouble. Broken relationship with God is why, and sin is what does it. But this is grace. Nobody needs to wear clothes of one weave anymore. Nobody needs to shave their heads and let their sideburns and beard grow. We only have to say yes to Jesus. That's what makes us righteous. That's what makes us holy. And that God is holy and perfect is good news. It means that we can trust him when he says stuff. And we know that he won't slumber or falter in his protection of us and his plan to make all things new. Holiness is good news. It's joyful news. But it's not a laughing matter. Number two, the church pure is the church powerful. What we see in the story is that purity is important. Holiness is purity. Purity sets things apart. If you take pure water and put it in impure water, the whole thing becomes impure. If you take God's people and let them behave like they aren't God's people, then they aren't God's people. Think about the one weave thingy. Think about the shaved head but not the sideburns. Distinct, set apart. Purity is important. It's one of our key values as a church. It's right up there on those pieces of wood. Adventure, purity, and compassion. What the book of Acts tells us is that purity equals growth and gospel advance. The watching world saw that the church's actions lined up with their words. Before the Ananias and Sapphira story, they're all of one heart and mind. Then Ananias and Sapphira fall down dead, and great fear grips the community both inside and out. And then what happens? The church grows. People don't run away. They run toward. Miracles break out. We're going to go into that next week. People who are ill drag themselves into the street to be prayed for by the apostles. A number of the Jewish priests in that moment turn to Christ. God adds to them daily. It's a strange strategy for church growth, but that's what happens. And not just in number, but in signs and wonders and healing and devotion. Imagine that. One of us walks in today with deep sin in our heart. They fall down dead here. And tomorrow, all the local business leaders and politicians and 500 people come to faith in Christ. And half the people in pool hospital are healed. That's, that's what's going on here. A pure people is an attractive people. A pure saver, savior is a powerful savior. Purity is important. Elsewhere in scripture, we read that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I know this. I, I make bread at home. You can take a whole kilo of dough and just a few grains of yeast and mix them all together, and the whole kilo will rise into bread. It's the same with sin. God must have seen the sinful yeast in Ananias and Sapphira and known that it would have infected the whole church. And in removing the sin, removed the yeast that would have made the whole church rotten. As a result of Ananias and Sapphira's removal, this young church is maintained. It's the only church in earth at that, on earth at this point. And then we see explosive growth. Follow this kind of story process. One heart and mind, then the deceit, then judgment on Ananias and Sapphira, then great fear, then many notice God, and then then an explosion of life and growth and healing and miracles. Imagine a church at Gateway that shines so purely that non-believers are running here to be saved and dragging their sick relatives here and crying, Jesus, heal them. That's what's happening here. Now, why is this important and what can we learn from that? Throughout the history of God's people, Satan has attacked the church, 
Persecution has followed God's people from time immemorial. The Israelites under Pharaoh, the captivity in Babylon, the Romans, communism, ISIS. It's always been there. And what has it produced? Growth. Historically speaking, the church grows under persecution. As much as we don't like to admit it, that's true. Right now, there's a huge explosion in the church in China, following decades of government clampdowns against it. And so what does Satan do? He realizes that attacking from the outside has minimal effect, and so he tries to attack from the inside. And that's important for us to be aware of. I read this account in a book recently. Um, It was about the Spanish Civil War. And uh, it said, as the nationalist forces marched on Madrid... General Emilio Mola, I think he's there, good-looking man, made a radio broadcast to the nation. He was asked which of his four armies would be most instrumental in capturing the city. He gave a famous reply. Victory would not belong to any of his four armies, he boasted. Inside Madrid, he said, he had an invisible army of secret supporters and people sympathetic to his mission. His fifth army, he called it his fifth column. They would subvert and attack from the inside and lay wide the city's defenses for capture. Satan uses the fifth army, the fifth column. What he can't destroy from the outside, he will try to destroy from the inside. That's why scripture repeatedly tells us to live peaceably in the church, quickly resolve disputes, honor each other, don't harbor and let ill-feeling fester, pray for one another, love one another. Ananias and Sapphira broke that solemn commission, and they tried to elevate themselves above the church. Satan attacked from the inside. God stopped him in his tracks. We cannot let Satan attack us from the inside. We must be ruthless with sin. Rooted out of our lives and be prepared to uh, lovingly and appropriately help each other to run the race by picking each other up, warring against sin together, cheering each other on and praying for one another to stand firm for Jesus. Purity is important. Purity is attractive. Purity is powerful. Third point. Holiness is hopefulness. There's a famous scene for anyone who has seen or read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the uh, C.S. Lewis story of Narnia, which is often regarded as an allegory of Christianity. And it's towards the end of the film when one of the heroes, a young girl called Lucy, is talking to another character about Aslan. Now they are doing it right there. Aslan is a lion who represents the savior figure, Jesus, if you like. And uh, Lucy is upset because Aslan, who she loves, is leaving. And she's talking to Mr. Tumnus about this, and she's having a bit of a cry. And he says, don't worry, we'll see him again. Lucy asks when. Mr. Tumnus says, one day he'll be here, and the next he'll be gone. But you mustn't press him. After all, he isn't a tame lion. No, says Susan, but he is good. Jesus is metaphorically called the lion of the tribe of Judah. He isn't a tame lion. He moves quickly to defend his people. He stands watch over his church. He behaves like a lion, defending his pride and taking out attackers. Jesus says that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And like everything else he said through the course of history, he's proven that promise. He's proved that promise when the son of Ananias and Sapphira threatened to bring the whole thing down. Jesus moves quickly to ensure our holiness. And our holiness, as we've seen, is of prime importance to him. That's why he warns us against sin and strengthens us to live for him and not apart from him. I look to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let my foot slip. That's why against all logic, against any impulse of human nature, to ensure our holiness and our relationship with him and our salvation and our eternal life, 
He himself denied the satisfaction of heaven, and he placed himself upon a cross, surrendered himself to brutality, mockery, and death, and crying out as he lay there, Father, forgive them. It's the very essence of God's holiness that's on display as he hung from the cross, because he moved quickly to ensure that we could be with him and like him and for him, a holy people. This is good news. God is separate and distinct, but in the person of Jesus and through his death on the cross, he's bridged that chasm. God is holy, but now he lives within us, and that makes us holy. Through great pain, through great judgment at the hands of sinful man, he has roared through the chains of death. He's rescued his people, and he's given us unshakable, unchangeable hope in him. He's not a tame lion, but he is good. How do, we, uh, how do we live in response to the story of Ananias and Sapphira? I suggest three things. Look at the words used to describe the church in the story at the end of Acts 4. It says, together, of one heart, of one mind, no need amongst them. The Greek word for this kind of life is uh, church life is used in this passage. I think it'll come behind us. Koinonia. Now, the richness of that word can't be grasped in one word in English, but it's translated something like this. Fellowship. Communion, communication, distribution, contribution, partnership, togetherness. The word translated as common is the root out of which the word koinonia comes. Fellowship is therefore is having all things in common. The great teaching of the New Testament is that we believers have all things in common with God. All the resources of God are at the disposal of the children of God, Barnabas gave up his land not as some kind of weird um, communist belief structure, but as a wild impulse of love towards God's people. And that's what we're called to. And we must pray and live in such a way that God restores us to and maintains our koinonia with each other and with him, such that a wild impulse of love towards each other is not the rule, but the exception. Sorry, is the rule, but not the exception. It's been said that the, the local church is the hope for the world. That's us. It was absolutely true for that church in Jerusalem. It went on to grow and multiply all across the globe, and it continues to. That's how God is glorified. That's how new believers are made. It's true now. That's our birthright. We need to live up to it. Second thing is we need to remember that we love and serve a holy God who also calls us to be holy, and this has implications for how we conduct ourselves. The oneness of the church described in the story, the holiness of the church, made a lie impossible. It was a lie that broke fellowship and ran face first into the grace of koinonia and lost. We need to live holy as God is holy. We live in an age that tells us that it's okay to live however you want as long as it makes you feel good. But that's not right. Because it's not what God calls us to. He calls us to meditate on his ways, on his standards of purity and holiness. As one of my friends so brilliantly said, referring to the accounts of angels in scripture, it's the Beatles that sing, all you need is love. But in the presence of God, the angels sing, holy, holy, holy. To live holy is to fix your life on God, all of it, and to love him with all your heart, mind, and soul. Be holy as God is holy. Finally, and most importantly, remember what's been done for us. The gap between man and God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, or the rightness of God that we enjoy, that's been done for us 
by a man who lived a perfect life, holy in all his ways, perfect koinonia with man and God, spilling his blood for us on the cross, the sacrificial lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We go free from the wreckage of sin, and now we are holy as God is holy, only for and because of him, and in so doing, we glorify his name. Jesus. Jesus makes us holy. Jesus makes us right before God. Jesus restores all the cells and out-of-place atoms that construct us to their right orientation because Jesus is why we live and is our purpose for being. And as we rest in him this morning and what he's done for us on the cross, we find peace, we find purity, we find holiness, we find salvation. Should we pray? Father God, I thank you that you are a holy God, and even now, the angels that surround your throne cry, holy, holy, holy. Lord, I thank you that you have called us to live distinct and set apart as you are distinct and set apart, but through the life and the love of Jesus, you've also called us to communicate and demonstrate that to a watching world, and to act with incredible and scandalous love and grace, just as King Jesus, you did for us and for our sake and for your glory. And so, Lord, my prayer this morning for my brothers and sisters, myself, is that we would live in the good of that. We would remember that we love and serve a holy God, that we'd remember that Jesus died for us, shed his blood for us, took away our sins, so that now we can be right with the Father. Now we can be right with the Holy One. Now we can be in perfect koinonia with the Holy One and with one another. King Jesus, thank you for all that you've done for us. We bless and glorify your name. Amen.